So if I asked you to give me an example of someone with great faith, who would come to mind for you? Would it be someone in the Bible? Maybe an Abraham or an Esther or a Paul? Would it be maybe a missionary who has given up everything that they have to go into some remote or dangerous part of the world to to spread the gospel? Maybe your example of a person with great faith may be someone who has maybe one of the martyrs, right? Who's someone who has stood faith, stood firm in the faith and uh, chose death over denying Christ. Maybe it's someone who has stood up for the cause of injustice, like the Martin Luther King, or someone who has gone into the, the slums of the world to show compassion to the least of these, like a Mother Teresa. Maybe your example of great faith may just be a grandparent or a mentor, someone who has faithfully lived their life for Christ, their, their entire life for Christ. Now, obviously, the list of these could go on and on. If we think of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, we are given paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of examples of people who exhibited great faith in the Lord, and through them, the Lord was able to work great and mighty deeds, right? That particular passage ends with chapter 12 in verse 1, where it says this, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. See, the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11 and the whole point of thinking about people who have exhibited uh, faithfulness in their lives is so that we would imitate their lives, so that we would follow Jesus in such a way so that we too may receive the rewards that they received. All throughout Scripture, the idea of faith is constantly held out before us. Now, I know that sounds kind of overly simplistic to say, but faith is the foundation for everything. Faith is the foundation for everything. We are constantly being encouraged to grow in the faith. We're constantly being encouraged to have faith. We are told that we are justified by faith, and we are told that the righteous person will live by faith. Now, all throughout Scripture, especially in places like like Hebrews and Romans, we're given various definitions of what faith is. But have you ever noticed that when you're reading of Scripture, that more often than not, we aren't necessarily given detailed definitions of what faith is, but we are actually given examples of what faith is. See, more than being told what faith is, we are shown what faith looks like. We are told stories of faithful deeds and of faithful lives, and the reason for this is so that we would imitate their example, like I said. That's why Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ. We are to imitate the lives of those who have remained faithful to God and to his promises. Now, I do have my own examples of of who I think of when I think of examples of great faith, but after spending this week studying our gospel passage in Mark 5, I have to admit I have two new favorite examples of faithful people. 
One is this man named Jairus, and this other is this unnamed woman. And this is what I want us to look at this morning. If you have your scriptures, uh, turn with me to Matthew, I'm sorry, to, to Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It's the gospel passage that we just read a little bit ago. Now, this is a long passage. There is a lot there. And there are many different ways that I could have actually taken the sermon this morning. But as I was looking at this, this concept of faith kept, point, kept jumping out at me. This kind, the idea of, of, of faith just kept jumping out at me. And I kept thinking, there are so many things in this passage that we can learn about faith. It has so many important lessons for us about faith, and that's what I want to look at this morning. And so in Mark chapter 5, let me give just a 30,000-foot overview of that story that we just read. In Mark chapter 5, we meet this man. His name is Jairus. He comes to Jesus, and he begs him to heal his, his dying daughter. Well, on the way to Jairus' house, Jesus gets interrupted. He gets interrupted by this woman who has been suffering from, a, it says, a discharge of blood for 12 years. And what she does, she secretly, secretly sneaks up behind him and touches his robe, and she's healed. Well, that causes Jesus to stop and have this conversation with her. Well, somewhere in the midst of that conversation, sometime during that, Jairus' daughter actually passes away. Well, by the time that Jesus gets to the house, she's already dead, but eventually he raises her back to life. Now, again, that's just a 30,000-foot view. We're going to look at a few details. But again, I want to look at what this particular passage teaches us about faith itself. And, and I want to hold up three particular points for you this morning about faith. I think that this passage sa- teaches us that faith is formed humbly, that faith is practiced boldly, and that faith connects us securely. That faith is formed humbly, practiced boldly, and that it connects us securely. So let's, let's look at each of these in turn, if you will. Faith is formed humbly. So as we read through the passage, what are we going to see? We're going to see that there are a number of parallels that are both exactly the same and exactly opposite between these two people. One of the contrasting differences is that we are given man whose name we're told. We're told that his name is Jairus, which means the one whom God has enlightened. Now, the idea of that is that by the end of the passage that Jairus will have been enlightened to see Jesus in a new way, and the hope is, so that, we w- is that we would too. Now, this man named Jairus, we're told that he is the leader of a synagogue, that he's a leader of a synagogue. Now, the word there that's used it's not like a scribe or a priest or anything. It's more of a senior lay leader, if you will. A senior lay leader, particularly one who is in charge of just making sure that worship is organized and runs smoothly. But the point is, is that this man, Jairus, he has a name, but he's also part of the in crowd. Right? Jairus, he has a title. It means he has a bit of social standing within his village. We're also told that he has he has a family, right? It's his daughter that he's praying for. Now, contrast that with the other person in this story. We have this woman whose name we're not given. I'm sure she had a name, but we're not given it, right? It's not remembered. 
We're told that she is suffering from an illness that has caused a constant flow of blood for about 12 years. Now, what's implied is that there really is a problem with her reproductive system, right? There's been some type of, of menstrual bleeding or something of that nature for 12 years. This would have prevented her from having children. This would have prevented her from having a family. This also would have prevented her from being a member of the community. Because if you remember, in the Mosaic laws, this kind of bleeding would cause a woman to be unclean. That means she's unclean for 12 years. She's outside of the community. She wouldn't have been able to come to worship in the synagogue or in the temple. She would have been barred from assemblies and large crowds. Because the idea is that if someone is ceremonially unclean, if they touch somebody else, then that other person also becomes ceremonially unclean, and so they're put outside. Moreover, we're also told that this woman had spent everything that she had on medical procedures and nothing helped. Right? There's major differences between Jairus and this unnamed woman. And yet, notice a similarity, a very important similarity. They both take the exact same kind of posture before Jesus. In verse 22, Jairus comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet. And he, it says it's imploring, imploring him, literally begging him to come and lay hands on his daughter so that his daughter would be made well. The woman in, chat, in verse 27, she comes up behind Jesus and she touches his garment. Now, in both, Mar, in both Matthew and Luke, we're given some more specific details. We're told that she touches the hem of his garment or the corner of his garment. Some translations might even say the tassel of his garment. The, the, the implication here is that if you're going to touch the hem of someone's robe, you need to get pretty low to the ground in order to make that happen. Now, moreover, when she's actually called out by Jesus for doing this very act, she comes to Jesus, and again, she falls at his feet. Right? She confesses her action. And it's at this point that this initial posture before Jesus shows us both their humility before Jesus. And it was once that they both took this particular posture before Jesus that Jesus was, be, was able to begin his work in their lives. So once they took an act of humility before Jesus that he began to work in their lives. Pride is a great killer of faith. Pride is a great killer of faith because pride keeps us from receiving the things that we need because it keeps us from admitting that we need them. See, in our pride, we search for solutions of our own making, do we not? Solutions according to our own agendas. That's because if we can find a solution to a problem or fill up some type of lack that we have in our lives, then we can get all the glory for that, right? We can point back to ourselves, to our ingenuity, to our strength, to our wisdom, to our resourcefulness. And we can say, hey, look what I've done. Pride keeps us from receiving because it won't really let us admit that we have a lack. It won't let us admit that we have a need, but yet here is Jairus and this woman. They both come to Jesus in faith because they are both desperate. They are both desperate and in need of something. They both realize their helplessness. And in the face of this great suffering and death, they both realize not only that they can't do anything about it, but neither can anybody else. Neither can anybody else. Contrast that with prideful people. 
prideful people won't admit their helplessness, right? And yet, for these two people, as different as they are, it's their helplessness that drives them to humble themselves before Jesus, and it's at that very moment that Jesus begins to work in their lives and begins to do for them what they could never do for themselves and to do for them what no one else could ever do for them. See, faith begins with humility and by humbling ourselves before Jesus because we know that only He can do what needs to be done in our lives. So that's the first point. The second point is this, that faith is practiced boldly. Faith is practiced boldly. Now, I admit that on the face of that, that might seem a little contradictory to the point I just gave. But I want you to think of it this way. You see, by faith, we are able to push aside everything in our life that actually builds up our pride. And that is both an act of humility and an act of boldness. You see, there are many things that we seek after. We seek after things that give us a a false sense of self-confidence, if you will. We seek after status and wealth and accomplishment. Well, we also seek after people's approval. We also seek after people's approval. And seeking people's approval keeps us from doing other things because we worry about the way that that might make us look. It's the what-will-they-think-about-me syndrome, right? But notice this, that in Mark chapter 5, there are many references to crowds. All throughout Mark chapter 5, you have many, many references to these great crowds. Crowds are everywhere. They're on the shore when Jesus gets off the boat. They follow Jesus and they press in around him. They, when they arrive back to Jairus' house, there's people everywhere. His family, his servants, they've even got professional mourners that they've hired to, to weep and wail and they're causing commotion. But here's how both Jairus and this woman, they, they act. Jairus, he pushes through the crowd. He wasn't going to let some physical barrier of people get in his way. And then, in full view of everyone, he takes this posture of humility before Jesus. And that's a pretty bold act, because remember, Jairus is a leader of the synagogue. Jairus is a leader of the synagogue. And that, that's not just a passing detail. If we look back two chapters in Mark, the last time that Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, the last time that Jesus encounters leaders of synagogues, of a synagogue, Jesus walks into a synagogue, he heals a man with a withered hand, and that upsets everybody because it's a Sabbath day, and the leaders of the synagogue actually start to plot to kill him. And now here is, just two chapters later, a leader of the synagogue, in full view of everybody, begging Jesus, imploring Jesus to come and heal his daughter. That would probably have serious consequences amongst the other leaders for Jairus. But Jairus boldly comes before Jesus, regardless of what anybody else is going to say or think. And on top of that, by the time they actually get back to Jairus' house, his daughter's already dead, and the very first thing that we hear from the people in his house, they come out and they say, hey, stop troubling Jesus. Just, just leave Jesus alone. Right? He's, you know, your daughter's already dead. Just go do something else. Right? There's people who's telling him not to have the faith that Jesus then turns around and says, hey, don't fear, but have faith. And it's only because Jairus was bold enough to not listen to everybody around him that he was able to follow Jesus into the presence of death itself. And because he was able to do that, he was able to receive from Jesus what only 
Jesus could give, which was the life of his daughter. Now, in the same way, we have this unnamed woman. In the same way, she also pushes through the crowds, right, to get to Jesus. Now, although this woman didn't have the status that Jairus had, she nonetheless didn't let the crowds keep her away. Remember, in her condition, with her bleeding disease, she was ceremonially unclean. By law, she was supposed to stay away. By social wisdom, everybody was telling her to stay away. Yet here she is in the middle of the crowd, and on top of that, in spite of her condition, she actually reaches out and touches Jesus. Right now, the crowds might not have understood that Jesus was the Messiah, but they would have at least understood that he was a prophet or some other important person, and touching Jesus would have been a no-no. Why? Because, at least in their minds, it would make Jesus ceremonially unclean. And that would have caused major repercussions for her. Stoning, death, something like that. And yet, Jesus stops the crowds and he turns around and he says, who touched me? Right? Now, you can only imagine the fear that that would have caused her. And yet, she humbles herself enough to come in front of Jesus and in front of everybody else and confess her sins, or at least the sin that that she thought was a sin, the action that she thought was a sin. Also, don't, also put, put yourself in her shoes. Think of the embarrassment of having to tell Jesus and everyone else around about this particularly, particularly embarrassing condition. Think about having to confess before Jesus and everybody else that her very presence was probably making the entire crowd unclean. Right? She could have listened to the social wisdom of the day she could have listened to the doctors who said, you need to just stay away. There's nothing that anybody can do for you. But she boldly, by faith, pushed all of that aside and came to Jesus. And when she did that, she was able to receive from Jesus something that she probably never thought she would ever, ever hear or receive. You see, instead of being condemned by Jesus, Jesus says this. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Don't miss the fact that Jesus calls her daughter. Don't miss that, don't miss that fact. Now, there is an obvious connection between her being called a daughter and Jairus' daughter, right? But there's also another fact. Jesus declares her to no longer be an outcast. Jesus declares her to no longer be an outcast. She once was a person who was put outside of the village, and now she's brought in as near as a child is to a father. Once she was put outside of the village, but now she's brought back into the family because she was willing to act boldly. Right? She didn't know what would happen. She didn't know what would happen, but she trusted that Jesus was her only hope, and that gave her the courage to act. Friends, so often we worry about what other people are going to think of us. We worry about what other people are going to say. We worry about our reputation. We worry about the things that, that our faith might cost us. And you know what happens when we do that? It causes us to not pray bold prayers. It causes us to not pray boldly for ourselves or even on behalf of others because we worry about what other people are going to think. It also causes us not to step out in faith when we feel that the Spirit might be leading us to do something that might seem impossible. 
because we worry about what people are going to say. We worry about social wisdom or social con- the, the social wisdom of the day, right? Do you think that, that all the heroes of the faith worried about what people thought of them? Do you think that Abraham worried about what people thought of him when God called him to leave his country and go to a place where he didn't even know where he was going? Or do you think that Moses worried about what people thought of him when he stood before Pharaoh and demanded the, le- the release of the Hebrew captives? Or when Paul traveled to the, the places all over the world to preach the gospel? Or the martyrs? Or any other person of faith that you can think of? You see, this is it, that faith is practiced boldly because people are willing to not worry about what the crowds think, but to follow Jesus. James says, you say you have faith. If so, then show me. That's the Eric's piece paraphrase of that. <laughs> if we can, if you can listen to the crowds if you want to. You can listen to the crowds if you want to. It'll keep your pride intact But it's only in humility that we can boldly pray to the Lord, and only in that act of boldness can we see the Lord work in our lives. Faith is practiced boldly. And you want to know why that is? It's because of my third point. Because faith connects us securely. Faith connects us securely. Now, you see, up until now, I haven't given you a definition of faith yet, and that's partly because I wanted to be true to my, my first point, that we are given more examples than definitions. But I do want to give one specific definition of, of faith here to help us to understand what faith actually is. You see, true faith is belief, is belief and trust in Jesus alone and in who he has revealed himself to be. You see, both of these people in our passage in Mark chapter 5, they had both heard about Jesus. They probably had both witnessed events that gave them confidence that only Jesus could do what nobody else could do. This is not a blind faith here, friends, right? It's not them, and it's not just, it's not just, say, a mere intellectual assent. See, faith is so much more than that. Faith is literally what connects us to Christ because it brings us into saving union with Christ and causes us to experience His life-giving power. Ephesians 2 says it like this. It says that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith connects us to Christ. The Anglican theologian N.T. Wright says this. He says, faith is the channel through which Jesus' power works. It connects us and it gives us access. Faith acts kind of like a conduit, if you will, which allows God's grace to flow into us and allows us to grab hold of his power and his promises in order to make them reality in our lives. And this is illustrated for us in Mark chapter 5, specifically by the references to to physical touch. You see, in verse 22, Jairus comes to Jesus and he says, Come, lay your hands on my daughter so that she may be made well and live. Come, lay your hands. And then when Jesus gets to the room where this dying girl or this dead girl is lying, he takes her hand and then he speaks to her and she receives life. It reminds me of the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 when it says, When we were dead in our transgressions and sin, it was God who makes us alive together with Christ. Now, similarly, in verse 28, we see this woman who thinks to herself, she says, if I just touch 
even his garments, I will be made well. And so she reaches out through the crowd and touches Jesus, and it says that power flowed from out of him, and she was immediately healed. And then Jesus turns around and says, who touched my garments? Which is really kind of a funny question, right? Because he's got people all around him, and people are knocking into him and pushing into him, and of course, everybody's touching him. But Jesus meant that someone had come in contact with him differently. Someone had come, had come into contact with him through faith. And that's why Jesus is able to turn around and says, look, it's your faith that has made you well. Now these scenes show us that when we are connected with Christ by faith, only then does he do his work in our lives. See, there, there are two things that I, we need to notice, though, in this particular instance. That both Jairus and this woman... They ask Jesus to make them well. We see that phrase a few times through the passage, make them well. That word that's translated make them well is the same word that's translated for salvation. It's the word for salvation. It's the word for rescue. It's the word for deliverance. It's the word for restoration. So Jesus looks at her and says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Therefore, you can go in peace. That's, why when we re- that's, why, that's what we receive when we are connected with Jesus. Saving grace through faith. There's also a second thing to notice here, is that technically, it's Jesus' power that heals this woman. It's Jesus' power that heals this woman, and it's Jesus' power that raises this young girl from the dead. You see, too, we, too often we get confused by this particular saying of Jesus. It's not necessarily this woman's just esoteric faith or esoteric intellectual assent that saves her. It's the fact that she's willing to be connected to Jesus and are willing to let Jesus' power work in her life that makes her well. Life and restoration are gifts that come only from Jesus. The woman received it, Jairus received it, and so did Jairus' daughter. Faith is a very mysterious thing. Don't underestimate the power of praying for other people. And so, friends, as we close let me commend this to you. When we think about faith, let me commend to you Jairus and this unnamed woman. I commend them to you as examples of faith, not because they had extraordinary faith, but simply because they had faith. And that's really the key, friends. You see, we might consider heroes in the faith heroes, but they're not really heroes. That's not the right word, right? People who we consider who have had great faith have not had a faith that's deeper than ours or even stronger than ours. It's just simply that they had faith which connected them to Jesus and allowed God to work mightily in their lives and through their lives. They aren't extraordinary, but Jesus is. Jesus is the only one who conquered death on the cross and through his resurrection, and Jesus is the only one who has the power to save us and to bring us into the family of God. Both Jairus and this woman experienced that saving power firsthand because they came to Jesus humbly and because they acted boldly and because they experienced Jesus' saving grace, which connected them securely. And so in our own walk of faith, may these people serve as examples for us to follow. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.